The Presbyterian Church called a meeting to decide what to do about the squirrel infestation. <laughs> After much prayer and consideration, they concluded that squirrels were predestined to be there and that they should not interfere with God's divine will. At the Baptist Church, the squirrels had taken a real interest in, of all things, the baptistry. And the deacons met and they decided to put a water slide in the baptistry and just let the squirrels drown themselves. But it turns out that the squirrels liked this slide very much and unfortunately they instinctively knew how to swim and so twice as many squirrels showed up the following week. <laughs> Lutheran church decided that they were not going to harm any of God's creatures and so they humanely trapped the squirrels and set them free near the Baptist church. <laughs> but two weeks later the squirrels were back and the Baptists and, and, and when the Baptists they had taken down the water slide and they all came back. The Catholic church came up with a very creative strategy, however. What they did is that they baptized all the squirrels and made them members of the church, and now they only see them at Christmas and Easter. So that But not, not much has been heard from the Jewish congregation, the synagogue, because what they did is they, th they took that first squirrel, circumcised him, and they haven't seen the squirrel since. Oh, you laughed a lot better than the first hour. That's great. <laughs> How do you deal with sensitive issues in the church? It's never easy. I mean, you don't like to offend anybody. You don't like to hurt their feelings, and you tread lightly. But that is certainly not what Jesus did. He went against the grain. Uh, he called a spade a spade. And when he taught the followers then how to live it out and how to please God the Father... And that's what he does in today's passage. He addresses a problem. He hits, it with the, he hits it head on with the religious throng that followed him, as well as his own followers. And it was a problem that was just as prevalent today as it was then. And it's called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. That is putting on a mask to create an illusion that you are one way when in reality you are not that way at all playing games with God and with people. And of course, we don't do that. Or do we? Well, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12, and let's take seriously Jesus' warning against hypocrisy. Luke 12, 1 to 12, it's page 964 in that Bible on the seat near you. You can pick that up. And read along this passage. I'm going to read aloud. I'd like you to read silently along with me. Beginning 12, verse 1. <clears throat> In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you whispered in private shall be proclaimed from the rooftops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
are not five sparrows sold for two pennies. And not one of them is forgotten by the Father. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. You are much more valued than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about what you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So after reading through chapter 11 of Luke, it's clear that there's a great crowd following after Jesus that numbers in the thousands. They're trampling on each other. We saw in 11 verse 29 that the crowds were increasing. They were increasing because of his teaching, because of answering the questions. And now having gone inside the house of one of the Pharisees in verse 37, outside the crowd presumably had been swelling that, during that time with a prospect that Jesus would be coming out again. And so those who had been following him saw him go inside. They went and told their friends and neighbors. They said, hey man, we have been listening to this Jesus of Nazareth and what he's been talking about. And you ought to come out and listen to what he has to say because I'll tell you what, it's something you and I need to hear. Which is not a bad strategy for us. As we get excited about our faith and listening and learning from the word of God and what he's teaching us, that we go out and we invite others to come and see what we're so excited about. People sometimes say to me, Jay, what church should I go to? Well, I'll tell you, you go to the church where you are so excited about what God is doing there in your life and in the lives of those around you, like your kids and others, that you want to invite them to come and hear the same stuff that you're hearing and experience the same, the same uh, uh, excitement that you're, that you're excited about because of the messages, because of the kids' clubs, because of the VBS, because of the, 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 you know, the, all the activities going on, because it's all talking about Jesus and we're growing in him, and you want others to experience the same thing. Anyways, that's a great way of doing it. And we're doing it here at Grace Point. We've just got to do it more, okay? So invite. There's great stuff happening here at Grace Point. So Jesus enters into the crowd. But his focus is not so much on the crowd as it is on, on his followers. And from this time forward in the book, you're going to see this pattern taking place where he speaks to the crowd, but then he turns and he gives instruction to his disciples. So here he instructs them of, of three things. Three matters. Number one, beware of hypocrisy. Number two, be encouraged in the face of intimidation. Number three, beware of the dreadful sin that will not be forgiven. We're going to look at those closely in a minute. That Alfred Plummer, in his commentary, says that what Jesus is doing in these verses is that he issues... A call to courageous sincerity. Sincerity is genuine. It is honest. It is earnest. It is authentic with God and with those who are around you. And in our world, that takes courage. Because if you frequent Facebook, I mean Facebook, sorry, that you'd begin to wonder... 
if you're the only one in this world that has problems. Because Facebook is filled with happy faces and successes and achievements and awards and rewards galore. But there's a whole other side of life, isn't there? But you'd never know it if you just spent all your time in Facebook. It's not the real world. Who is real anymore? Who wants to let others in on their nightmare existence of worries and concern and failures and losses? And yet that's the world we live in, isn't it? Every single one of us. But you'd never know it. Jesus calls us to something different. When in your life have you answered the call to courageous sincerity? I think one of the places it happens best is in groups. Men's groups, women's groups, mixed groups, small groups where you take your hair down, where you open yourself up, where you share something that goes a little further than you would normally and that you as a group have held in confidence together. That's one place that you dare to be courageous and sincere and honest and transparent and not be judged for it. Now granted, not all groups are there yet, okay? But it is something that we strive for. And I hope you group leaders are, are using that as, as one of the fundamentals of this that we hold in confidence what we share together. Baptism. That's another place of courageous sincerity. That it is a great place to start as well. I mean, if you're going to start this Christian walk, that's the place to do it because that was the pattern in the New Testament in the book of Acts. Was it not? They believed and they were baptized. They believed and they were baptized. One immediately followed the other. That when you come to Jesus, the first challenge you got was to Strip off all the fakery and the illusion and you come to God and man and before them and you confess outwardly and openly that there is no good thing about me except Jesus Christ. There's nothing good in me except him. And I stand before you today to declare to you that I am nothing more than a sinner, a sinner saved by grace. And from this day forward, I choose no longer to live for myself. I choose to live for Jesus Christ. And I believe in his death and his resurrection for me. And from this day forward, I choose to live for him. And I want you all to know that. That's courageous sincerity. And our next baptism is September 15th. And I hope that if some of you have never been baptized as a believer, that you would take seriously the call to courageous Sincerity that God may be laying on your heart this morning. And, and the reason I think that God has us looking at that this morning is that some of us are still playing the game. So let's look at Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12 together, and let's look a little more carefully. Courageous sincerity. It begins with a warning of hypocrisy. Here's, here's his first instruction to the disciples. Beware of hypocrisy. Look back at me, Luke chapter 11, 39. No one is a better example of religious hypocrisy than the Pharisees. And the Lord said to, said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside, inside, you are full of greed and wickedness. And Jesus then, as you recall, has some very sharp words for their religious phonies. Religious phonies. 
Some of you may be here today for the first time in a long time. And one of the reasons may be because you have had this deep concern over phony religious practices of people who call themselves Christians. And if that's true, I understand that. And I would also encourage you to know that that was also a concern of Jesus here in Luke chapter 12. Religious hypocrisy. And so he gives the warning to his followers to make sure they don't get contaminated by the idea that though things may look good on the outside, that the inside really doesn't matter all that much. Because it does. It does big time. And that's what he's warning about. A kind of religious sham, a kind of religious existence. Painting a picture on the outside that disguises the reality of what is going on on the inside. Now, bread was a very common staple for the people in that day. And he refers to the bread here of yeast the yeast of the Pharisees. They knew the properties of yeast. And I've learned them by watching my wife continuing for many years. Uh, she would make a uh, loaf of bread from a common uh, uh, dough that had a little bit of yeast in it. And she ma- it looked very much like that bread on the screen right in front of you this morning. And she would make this, uh, she would take a little portion of it, lay it aside, and then make the rest of the, of, of the, of the bread. And then containing a little bit of yeast of that dough, she would use for the next starter. And she'd make it again and again and again. And this went on for years when my boys were young. It was delicious bread. But it was a lot of work. But I learned a lot about yeast. A little yeast can go a long way. And that's the picture that Jesus paints for us here. Its penetration is slow, it is insidious, and it is constant. Jesus says, I want you to be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The practice of saying one thing and doing another spreads through life, and it eats at the moral fiber like a cancer. And he also says that these religious phonies, it's not only wrong, this hypocrisy, but it's futile. It won't last. It'll be found out. Sooner or later, the mask will be slipping, and then your true face will be known and seen by all. And in verses 2 and 3, Jesus points out that there's a day of reckoning coming. If we live in a world of deception, merely going about our religious practices and doing our religious acts, it's just a matter of time before it'll all come to light. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5, he will bring to light the things that are now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes or the motives of one's heart. You see, the real issue isn't did he preach well. The real issue is why did he preach? The real issue isn't did did she go and visit the neighbor across the street. The, The real issue is why did she go and visit the neighbor across the street? What's the motive? And it's the kind of hypocrisy that whispers unkindnesses about someone in the secret place and behind the closed doors, all the while maintaining a thin veneer of friendship and love on the outside and acceptance. Hypocrisy. And Jesus is saying, don't you fool yourself into thinking that in the long run or the short run that you will not be found out, that they will know your true identity because it will be found out one time or another, sooner or later. So beware of hypocrisy. 
It's wicked. It's short-sighted, and it's prevalent. And unfortunately, it remains prevalent even today. So don't think that this warning is meant only for them in their day. It is the sting of its reality hits us true today just as well. Well, Jesus then moves from a word of warning to a word of encouragement. And I want to underline the word encouragement because sometimes it, it gets misunderstood or misapplied or it's not seen at all. In this passage is words of encouragement. Be encouraged in the face of intimidation. Verses 4 to 9, verses 11 and 12. Don't be bluffed into the silence or, or bluffed into insincerity by the threats of religious bullies. Really is what he's saying. Look at verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Don't let the fear of what men may say silence you and your allegiance to me. And he encourages us again in verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Don't allow their threats to cause you to disown me or to deny me. Again, the emphasis, verses 8 and 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Don't let these threats cause you to disown me. Stand up. Stand up with me. Just as the old hymn you know, says, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would what? Take my stand. Don't give in. Don't bow to their threats. In other words, what we need to learn is to fear the one fear that makes us fearless in the face of intimidation. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, was being laid to his final resting place. And, and as that coffin was being lowered into the grave, a friend was heard to say to another friend, Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. That's the significance of verse 4, isn't it? Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. So Jesus is saying to his followers, don't be intimidated by people when the worst thing they can do is take your life, as if life is all there is. Because in truth, it is not all there is. In reality, death is just a precursor to your eternity with me. In Christ, don't be concerned about that. Rather, if you want to, if you want to know what you should fear, Jesus says in verse 5, fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And this idea of a proper kind of, of fear is to instill into the believer, into you and me, the right kind of living. That's not only unique to this passage, it's, 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 it's common throughout the New Testament. It's a fear that combines the, the, the awareness of how great and glorious God is, along with, secondly, how puny and sinful and prone to sin I am. And it's this kind of fear that God wants us to experience so as to prevent us from foolish thoughts that lead to foolish actions, that lead to foolish consequences. It's a fear that, that, that understands that if I deny God here on earth, he's going to deny me there in heaven. 
It's a fear that keeps me honoring him in moments of decision that you and I face every day. Am I going to please God or am I going to please me? I choose to please God because I fear him more than any other. See? Some of us, after considering these verses, might be a bit confused. Okay, Jay, you said, don't fear them. I tell you who to fear. Fear him. And then he says again, fear not. So who are we supposed to fear, you know? And who, what is, what's this fear all about? What I want you to understand is this. Overarching idea throughout all of these verses is an emphasis on encouragement encouragement even though jesus uses the word fear several times which is not normally an encouraging reality but in this case it is because what jesus is saying is i want to reassure you i want to encourage you of three things number one your heavenly father cares for you your heavenly father cares for you verse six are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before god why even the hairs of your head are all numbered Fear not, you are more value than many sparrows. See, Jesus wants you to know that those who are his are intimately known by the Father. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. The Father knows the smallest details about you. He cares for you, number one. Number two, your Savior advocates for you. Your Savior, Jesus, is an advocate. He's on your side. Verse 8, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. Jesus is our advocate and pleads our case before Almighty God and stand, he stands with us. He stands beside us and we are clothed in his righteousness, not our own. So be encouraged that the Father knows the details of your life. Be encouraged that the Savior advocates for you before God the Father in the throne of grace. Thirdly, be encouraged that of the Holy Spirit's instruction in your life. That when you stand up against the intimidation that the world throws at you and me, that when we have that tendency to worry about what we might say, what we might, how we might fight, or fight back or what we should do, when you hope for the right words, the promise is that the Holy Spirit will give them to you. Look at verse 12. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. At no time have I found that more evident in my life than when I share the gospel with someone, when I share Christ with somebody. But I'll have, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of unknowns when you share with somebody about your faith. You don't know what they're going to say. You don't know what they're going to ask. And sometimes it's a fear that keeps us from even doing it. But I, I want to encourage you. I'll, I'll first have the person turn to Romans 3.23. All of sin falls short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 but the wages of that sin is, is death. And then Romans 5, 8, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then I finish with Romans 10, verses 8 and 9. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in, in the heart that he raised him from the dead, we will be saved or you will be saved. And then invariably, they ask a question. And that's what I'm afraid of, or I used to be. But I bet that's what you might be afraid of. You know, what if, I, what if they ask a question I can't answer? What if they ask me something I just, don't, I just don't know where it's coming from? And I'll tell you, there have been multiple times when I've done this that I've been surprised 
then not only did I have a reasonable answer, but at the same time, God brings and pops another verse into my head that I'd be able to share, and another thought, and then another verse will come to mind, and I'll be able to share. And after thinking about that and stepping back away from that, I've looked back on that, and I'm thinking, you know what? That's not me. That's, that's the Spirit of God giving me the words to say, giving me the right thoughts to convey. And I see that as something supernatural that takes place as I'm sharing my faith with somebody. Yeah, sure, it's maybe I've, over a course of time, a week or two or, or months or years that I've had to compile verses into my head because I, I try to spend time with God. And as I do, I'm intimate with him. He, he, sends his word, he pours his word into my heart. All of that takes place. But, but to be able to say that and have it come to mind is just, wow, thank you, Lord. And I see that as an answer to what he's talking about right here, that he gives you the right words to say. He'll give you the words to say. So he instructs us in these three ways. Number one, beware of hypocrisy. Number two, be encouraged in the face of intimidation. Number three, be aware of the sin that will, be, that will not be forgiven. And here he's like sounding the alarm. Did you have your phone on this week? You heard the alarm of the flooding. Jesus is sounding an alarm here. What is this? The sin that will not be forgiven. Verse 10. Look there with me. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Are we to understand from this that Sin against one member of the Trinity is of lesser offense than sinning against another member of the Trinity? No, I don't think so. I don't believe that's the case because they are equally God and they are equally offensive. So what does this mean? Well, you might think of it this way. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to speak against one who, of course, is invisible. Invisible. How do you say things against an invisible entity? I mean, the one thing to say things against an incarnate, the incarnate Jesus, to say, oh, I don't like what he said, or I don't like what he did, or I don't, I don't like this about him, I don't like that about him, I don't like those things. That's one thing. But for someone to say something against the third person of the Trinity, who is an invisible entity, who is described in the Bible, like the wind that you cannot hear, feel, smell, touch, or the Holy Spirit is like the wind. Where does that kind of hostility come from against an invisible entity? It is hostility that stands against something that is unmistakably divine and holy. And I think it's helpful to remember that if we are anxious, if we're anxious that we've committed that unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, we may need not to fear because blasphemy is always accompanied by a total indifference, a complete and total indifference. So the person who has blasphemed against the Holy Spirit does not go around worried or concerned that they may have, you know, done this sin. The individual couldn't give a rip. They couldn't care less that they blasphemed against God. This sin that is unforgiven, it is conscious, it is deliberate, it is willful, it is intentional. It's a sin that recognizes that, that 
God has revealed himself through the work of grace in Christ. And yet that individual in seeing something of the revelation of Christ out of hatred, out of hostility toward others, ascribes it to the devil and to the evil one. So instead of saying, you know, yes, I, I see that Jesus is the savior that he claims to be, the person says that Jesus is a demon and a devil from hell. Instead of recognizing that the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, they would say, whatever the Holy Spirit is, he's from the abyss and he's evil continually and I only have hatred for him. And that's what actually happened to Jesus when he healed the deaf mute, casting out the demon. And some of those who saw that said he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They were crediting to Satan that which was clearly of God. So when an individual determines that conversion to Christ, as it is explained to them, or obedience to Christ as it is made clear to them is nothing but ludicrous and foolishness and idiocy. And they say, there's no truth to this at all. I could care less about any single word about this Holy Spirit. That individual ought to be very careful because that is a sin that Jesus is addressing here with the Pharisees. Now, having said that, I have one more thing I just want to point out. That when an individual becomes fearful of having irrevocably rejected Jesus, but, but then with a, with a desperate longing to be forgiven, he or she needs to be, have, written, have read to them Mark 3, verse 28. You should write it right down there in the margin of your Bible. Mark 3, 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But the individual who in defiance rejects the promptings and the urgings of the Holy Spirit, this individual needs to read on, need to have read to them the following verse in verse 29, the gravest of all warnings. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of eternal sin. Now, can't you just see the eyes of the disciples? As Jesus is conveying this truth to them, they're getting wider like saucers. Jesus says, if you are wearing a religious mask, you can be sure one day it's going to slip and people are going to find out what's really behind it, what you really like. And don't allow others to intimidate you or to make you say something wrong against me, or to think ill of me, but you take your stand for the truth, and I'm going to be there with you. I'm going to look after you. The very hairs on your head are numbered, I know, and I will stand with you before the Father. And your Holy Spirit will give you the words and instruct you what you ought to say and what you ought to do. But don't you kid yourself that you can play games with me or with sin. And surely there is one who sat there, staring straight ahead, wrestling with the lie that was going on inside his soul. Judas. 
See, he's a reminder to you and me how close we can walk with Christ and how convincing may be our external veneer and yet how far from him our heart may really prove to be one day. So don't play games. I wonder if you're prepared today in your heart to take a step toward courageous sincerity. I'm going to make it easy for you. You're not going to have to do it before the throngs of angels in heaven today. You're not even going to have to do it before your colleagues and associates at the water cooler. I'm going to ask you to do it right now in your seat where you are right now before God. Just you and God. Courageous sincerity in his presence right now as you worship him and bow your head and confess. Let's do that. Let's bow our heads right now and confess. And you be honest and you be transparent and you be real. Our Father, we worship you. Our Father, we, we want to exercise courageous sincerity today. May we heed the warning. May we receive encouragement to not dance around sin. Father, give us the ability by your Holy Spirit to stand for you this week, even when it's not popular. But lean on you to do and say words that will honor you. We don't want to play games with you, Lord. May we heed your call for courageous sincerity, not only individually, but even as a church, without facade or prejudice, but merely gathering together as a bunch of sinners, because that's what we are, saved by grace who are more than willing to receive and accept other sinners who still need to be pointed in the right direction of Jesus. Thank you, our Father, for Grace Point and for all that's happening here that we're excited about because you're alive and you're well and you're in this place. And we thank you, Lord, that you're here. In Jesus' name we pray.